I consider it a joy and a privilege to be with you. If you want to go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 2, we'll be reading our text in just a moment, but I never want to neglect when I'm here to thank you for your kindness to our family, especially to Jimmy D and Megan and babies to Amelia, and also the way you've just received Cece and I as part of the the church family here. We you know, have our own commitments, obviously, with our own church, but we are so thankful when we're able to visit Hillsborough. And as a preacher, always a privilege to be able to break the bread of life with you. We'll be reading from Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. And if you're able to and would like to, to stand in joining us for this reading of the Word of God. Mark chapter 2, beginning with verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the public reading of your word. We thank you, Lord, that we can hide your word in our hearts. We might not sin against you, that in your word is cleansing, in your word is hope. And strength, because in your word is the revelation of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you'll open our hearts this morning to your word. That you'll give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand what you're speaking to us this morning. And then a will to act upon it. Lord, let this be a time not just of information, but a time of transformation We thank you, Lord, that your word never returns void, but always accomplishes that for which you've sent it out. So I pray, Lord, that you'll anoint us, the speaker and the hearers this morning, with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And God, that you'll be pleased with what you hear, what you see in our lives. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this privilege of being together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus spent time with sinners. He rubbed shoulders with them. He welcomed them. And when you look at the scriptures, you understand that he came to save them, to seek and to save the lost. Just the regular people didn't really understand this. The self-righteous people were offended by it. The religious people were angered by it, and they, they accused Jesus. You know, one of the accusations against Jesus, they meant it as just a terrible, ugly thing that they were saying, but it's actually true. And one of the most beautiful portions of Scripture, where in Luke fifteen two, 
they accuse Jesus by saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. They meant it as an insult. They meant it to cause scandal, but it's absolutely true, and thank God for it, that he visits sinners and he welcomes us to his table. These people often question Jesus, rooting their questions in their own self-serving traditions, their personal interpretations of the law, and we find that in our text this morning. John the Baptist, though first presented to us in the New Testament, is arguably the last of the Old Testament prophets. His clothing, his lifestyle, the message of repentance that he preached harkens back to the days of Elijah, to the Old Testament prophets. He was a cousin of Jesus, but seems to probably have been kind of an austere man, something of a recluse, and he and his followers practiced regular, perhaps even very frequent, fasting. In their case, fasting was associated with repentance and with mourning, and it was practiced in anticipation of the coming Messiah. It was an act of self-denial, and obviously was not a very pleasant experience. If you've ever fasted, you know it's, it's not easy and really not designed to be easy. The Pharisees also fasted. But they were a little bit different in their approach. It wasn't because of any scriptural requirement, but because of their own traditions. For them, fasting was a sign of piety. It was a religious ritual that, in their minds, marked them as different than the people around them. Most Pharisees, it seems, fasted about twice a week, and they were proud to do so, and they were proud to let everybody know it. For the Pharisees... Fasting was not primarily an act of self-denial, but an act of self-righteousness and a standard that they tried to impose on others. So Jesus and his disciples, if you look back a few verses to see the context, Jesus is at the home of a tax collector, enjoying a good meal, reclining at the table. The tax collector was one that saw the blessing of being in Jesus' company, probably put on quite a spread of food, and as the disciples were enjoying this time together, the question was asked, again with their mind, well, Jesus, here he is again, sitting at the table with sinners. So the question was asked, well, why do John the Baptist followers and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? And there's all kinds of implications there. Why aren't your disciples as good a Christian as the others are? Well, Jesus, as he often did, took the opportunity, whether it was a sincere question, whether it was an accusatory question, he always took the opportunity to teach. And in this case, there are two important, beautiful, wonderful truths that he highlights of who he was and what he came to do. And I pray you'll be encouraged with these this morning. First of all, Jesus was making the point that the bridegroom has come And he's come to make us glad. He's come to make us glad. You see, Jesus answered the question by reminding those who are listening. Now, the question was about fasting. But Jesus starts talking about a wedding. Have you ever been to a wedding that was just just plain fun? 
you know, there, there are a couple of weddings, even apart from the, the weddings of, of Jimmy and Megan and others in our family. That I, weddings I've been to, I remember I went to one years and back in the early 90s up in New York. And I had never seen a spread of food like that anywhere. I mean, it was like an all-you-can-eat buffet. And as I was on my third plate, somebody said, well, this is just the appetizers. There's a sit-down meal. And I enjoyed it, but I was hurting. Remember another wedding. I was overseas. My wife and I were invited to an Iranian wedding. And you talk about knowing how to party. The Iranian people know how to party. So Jesus brings his listeners, those who are asking this question, those who are probably standing around wondering, well, how's he going to respond to this accusation, bringing them back to weddings and particularly to wedding etiquette. You see, weddings in Jesus' day weren't exactly like today. You know, maybe the, the typical wedding today is still maybe 30 minutes followed by dinner or some kind of a reception. But in the Bible times, the wedding started with a contract. As the groom prayed the bride price to the girl's father. At this point, the couple were considered to be married. The, the word that you may be familiar with, particularly if you have read King James much of your life, is betrothal. The betrothal had taken place. And it was just the same as having been married, even though... The marriage has not yet been consummated. Because first, there was a period of waiting as the groom returned to his own father to prepare the home for his bride. And when that home was ready, the bridegroom, the groom returned to receive his bride. And then a week-long party ensued. It was not a time of grief. It was not a time of mourning, but it was a time of great celebration that then would have been followed by the consummation of the marriage. It would have been the height of bad manners to be invited to this wedding week, to this wedding ceremony, to this wedding feast, and to be mourning and fasting during the festivities. Jesus speaks and says there is indeed a time for fasting, but this occasion was not it. David Guzik in his commentary says that even the rabbis would say that the law could be set aside for the sake of joy during a wedding celebration. It was that important to celebrate. And you see, those who were listening to Jesus, who've asked this question about fasting, have now been redirected to the idea of a wedding. And they would have understood what Jesus was talking about, not just from their own experience of having attended weddings, but from Scripture. You see, they understood that God had presented himself as the bridegroom, and he had named Israel his bride. Consider the words of the prophet Hosea. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. It's in Hosea chapter 2. The Jewish people understood what Isaiah had written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he wrote in Isaiah 54 verse 5. For your maker is your husband, 
The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. You see, in drawing the thoughts of the people to this picture of a wedding, Jesus was drawing their minds to God as the bridegroom of Israel, and then he made his first big announcement. In essence, what was his announcement? The bridegroom is here. The bridegroom is with you. Jesus is that bridegroom. And as would be seen as his ministry unfolded, and as the early church began to unfold, the church is his bride. Now this probably sparked some more memories, especially in the minds of John's disciples, because he had already proclaimed Christ as the bridegroom. In John chapter 3, we find these words. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, his, this joy of mine is now complete. John's announcement after his messages of repentance, after his messages of pointing to a coming Messiah, was an announcement that the bridegroom is here. And Jesus made the same announcement when he was approached about this issue of fasting. What was meant to be an accusation, what was meant to be damaging, turned out to be another one of those great revelations as Jesus said, the bridegroom is here and I've come to make you glad. The bridegroom is now with you. This is a time for joy, for celebration. The groom has come to betroth his people forever. Wherever he is, joy should be obvious. And what does that mean to us? If you're in Christ, you have been betrothed to him. He has bought you. He has paid the bride price for you. And sometimes, and it's, it's probably because of the culture we live in, it seems to be increasingly godless. Maybe it's because of the weight of the world that we live in, the, 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 the struggles that we go through. Sometimes, if we're not careful, our Christianity, and I don't mean it as the religion, but our walk with the Lord, our relationship with Christ can become kind of heavy. And, and even kind of hard at times. And it shouldn't surprise us because we are told in Scripture, Scripture is very honest, that there are many afflictions for the righteous. But it also reminds us God delivers him from them all. The point this morning is the bridegroom is here. The bridegroom has come. If you have been invited into his presence, if you have put your trust in him, then this is a time of gladness even with the weight of the world, even with the struggles of life. This is a time of gladness and joy because the bridegroom is here. Now, those of you who are married, I, I hope you can look back with the same experience as me. One of the greatest moments of my life, though I was the groom, was standing in front of the church and watching my wife walk up the aisle. 
very few memories sweeter than that in my life. And, and you know, I'm kind of a, been accused of being austere myself at times, but I can't help smile when I think of that. It's a time of gladness. The bridegroom has come, and the bridegroom has invited us to join him. But that's not the only point Jesus was making. The second point Jesus was making is the bridegroom is here not only to make us glad, but to make us new. See, perhaps before those words had even sunk in well that the bridegroom is here, Jesus used two more illustrations. He went from a wedding to a piece of fabric that was wearing out to wineskins to make a point that it's not only a time for joy, it's not only a time to leave sadness behind, but it's a time of newness. You see, old garments cannot be patched with new cloth. Now, some of y'all are probably my generation. Anybody remember tough skins? I grew up wearing tough skins. My, my brother wore huskies. I wore tough skins. And they weren't very tough because it didn't take long to wear a hole in the knees. And in those days, my mom, out of convenience, raising five boys, rather than doing a lot of sewing, she'd buy those stick-on patches that you iron. And they looked good about the first time you wore them, but after the second time, they started peeling off. Well, that's the picture. You can't patch old stuff and have it do well because the new cloth will shrink or the patch will start to tear away, making the rip even worse. And in the same way, wine, new wine, can't be put into old wineskins. In other words, juice can't be put into wineskin because as that juice begins to ferment, as the gases begin to expand, the old wineskin, which has already been stretched out from the, the, the wine that was in it, it's going to begin to expand to the point of cracking and breaking and eventually busting open. And not only is the skin ruined, but the wine that's been put in it is ruined. So the second great truth that Jesus is making in these illustrations, talking to an audience that would understand these things, not only is the bridegroom here, not only is he here to make us glad, but he's here to make something new. The old covenant was ending. Now the old covenant was not going to be fixed. It was not going to be repaired. The Jewish religious system would not be revised or updated, but rather God was going to do a new thing. I like the way radio preacher J. Vernon McGee, uh, J. Vernon McGee expressed it. He said the new wine of the gospel would be put in the new wineskin of grace. Uh, Washington, D.C. preacher Tabidi Anyabwili, he put it this way. We cannot have the gospel with just a little touch of law and legalism. We cannot have the law with just a few ounces of Jesus poured in. The gospel is an entirely different garment, a complete garment in itself. Jesus was not only declaring something new, he was not only doing something new, but he was giving something new. And John chapter 1 verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And in this, we have obviously a new covenant. You see, the old covenant 
was made between God and people who were not able to live up to it. The new covenant is made between a father and a son. A perfect, obedient, faithful son who as God became flesh and dwelt among us so that we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father full of grace and full of truth. A kind, loving, heavenly father who so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, the old covenant was established by the blood of a heifer, the blood of a goat and a ram and turtle doves and a pigeon. It's Genesis chapter 15, verses 8 through 10, the covenant God made with Abraham. The new covenant was established by the blood of the bridegroom. And as the disciples gathered for their last meal together, we, we celebrate that I, I, at Hillsborough, I understand, the same as we do at Riverstone, the first Sunday of the month. We come to the Lord's table, and we remember that Jesus broke bread, and he gave it, and then he took the cup, telling them, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant was established at great cost so that we, who are unable to keep a covenant, we cannot keep a covenant do not have to, because the covenant is between a father and a son, but we have been invited in. A covenant has been made for us, kept for us, and we are the recipients of all the rights and the privileges and the benefits it brings. Not only a new covenant, but a new garment. The bridegroom did not come to give us a patched up old garment, but he came to give us a new one. A robe of righteousness. Listen to the words of Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with jewels. You see, through his work on the cross, Christ took upon himself the old filthy rags of our sin, our self-serving works, and he exchanged them for his own righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. His righteousness. His perfectly clean, holy garment has been imputed to us, transferred to us, credited to us, and we have been justified, declared right with God. He's given us a new covenant that we don't have to do anything for. It was made on our behalf and kept on our behalf. He gave us a new garment, his very righteousness, and he gives us a new spirit. Christ, the New Testament bridegroom, was the fulfillment of all that the prophets had spoken. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel and he wrote, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You see, our, our old nature has not been reformed. It's not been refurbished. It's not been patched up. But it's been made completely new. And we have a new spirit spirit 
that dwells within us. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8, verses 1 through 4, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin to the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. A new spirit that gives us a new way of walking and then gives us new life. You see, when you trust Jesus Christ, you become a new creation. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, if any woman is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. See, the new life results in a new manner of living. A new spirit results in a new manner of walking. And new life does not fit well in old forms. You can't, with new life, do some of the things you did in the old life anymore. It it, it just doesn't fit. It doesn't feel right. There's something wrong with it. And we know it because of what Christ has done in us. Our old lives aren't compatible with the new. We enter into a new life of love and fellowship with him because the bridegroom is here. And he's come to make us glad And he's come to make us new. He's received us and invited us to taste and see that he is good. And you see, this illustration, Jesus sees three specific illustrations. A wedding, old cloth and new cloth, old wineskins and new wineskins, teaches us what salvation is all about. If you're not saved you've wondered what is this all about well i I hope you're hearing and understanding i hope the lord's illuminating these things but for those of us who have already embraced the salvation that's so great through christ i hope it reminds us of how good he's been to us he's come to make us glad because he has indeed made us new he came to do away with transactional religion Religion that tries to always be buying God's favor, trying to make God like us better, trying to, to, to do things to keep our salvation. Oh, that's burdensome, but he's come to make us glad because he's come and made us new. He's replaced works with grace. But to partake, we must abandon the wine of our self-righteousness so that we can receive the new wine of his righteousness. Warren Wearsby wrote, Salvation from sin involves much more than a person knowing about Christ or even having good feelings toward Christ. Salvation comes when the sinner commits him or herself to Jesus Christ and says, I do. I do. Then the believer immediately enters into the joys of this spiritual marriage relationship, bearing his name, sharing his wealth and power, enjoying his love and protection, and one day living in his glorious home in heaven. When you're married to Christ, life becomes a wedding feast in spite of trials and difficulties.
Now think about that picture of a Jewish wedding, of an Old Testament wedding again. Jesus paid the bride price to the Father for us. His very blood for our betrothal. He has gone back to his Father to prepare the place for us. And he will come and get us at just the right time to bring us to the marriage feast, the greatest celebration ever given. And then all that he has planned for us be consummated, become reality. Everything will be made right. We will be like him. We don't know what that means, but Scripture says we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Maranatha. Not only is the bridegroom coming, but he's already come. You've been made new if you're in Christ. Let your hearts be glad. I'm going to ask your pastor to come and give a closing word or the closing prayer as the Lord leads him. Let's pray. Father, may your word ring true in our hearts. May it settle deep inside of us so that we might delight in your truth. That as we delight in your truth, that you will then cause it to overflow outside of us to share with our family, with our friends, with our neighbors. Holy Spirit, please take this word and make it alive inside of us that we might glorify you through transformed life. We don't want to go through the motions here. We want to serve you. We want to love you. We know that that's only possible by your power. Please come. Bless your people as they go on their ways today. For those who don't know you personally, soften their hearts. Help them to be responsive and receptive to your truth. And forever, Jesus, may you be glorified in our thoughts, our words, our actions, in our entire being. We give you all the glory. Commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.